Good morning. Those of you who uh, come from the direction of Bridgeton to church know that there's a real estate company on the right-hand side that has a beehive on it. And as we were driving by today, I had the thought that I'm told when bees identify a source of pollen, and pollen is one of the things that's necessary to a hive to survive and thrive, that when they're out looking around and they find it, they come back to the hive and they do a dance. And this dance tells everybody else that I found some pollen, come and, and get it. Well, I'm not a bee and I don't have any pollen and I'm sure not gonna do a dance. <laughs> Okay, however, I do think that we may have something today which can help our hive to survive and thrive. So with that, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come into your presence this morning as children. Your word says that we are to approach you and call you Abba, Father, Daddy. And it is in this way that we approach you. Eyes open, ears open, hearts open, desiring what you might teach us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, you've probably heard it ad nauseum, but it, at least the Christmas music has stopped. But Happy New Year. Okay, Happy New Year. There's a, we have, in our tradition anyway, a peculiarity about New Year in that we do something about New Year. As a culture, what is it common for us to do in New Year? Resolutions. We make New Year's resolutions. Trish and I talked about this last night, and she went to the purveyor of all knowledge, not wisdom, knowledge. She checked out Google, and she tells me that um, the number one resolution in the United States that's taken at New Year's is to lose weight. Now, obviously, I don't pay much attention to resolutions, okay? Losing weight may or may not be in my future. However, it, it's a curious thing that we do. We make these resolutions. Somebody, just, just call out some typical resolutions that might be made. Quit smoking. Read our Bible more. Sunday school teacher in the back. What else? More exercise. Okay, now there's another one that's right up there with losing weight. Any other ideas? Control your spending. Sure, develop a budget. Somebody else called something out. Declutter. As a society, we are the most materialistic society on the face of the planet. Decluttering is probably a good thing. Sorry? Sure. All right. Well, as Christians, do we as Christians make New Year's resolutions? Do 
do we make Christian New Year's resolutions? Yeah, well, we had one, read our Bible more. One of the statistics that I've come across is that New Year's resolutions rarely endure beyond 90 days, the first three months of the year. We may be filled in the, in the moment of introspection. We may be filled with good ideas. But oftentimes, they don't last very long. We get involved in the day-to-day, -day, the busyness of life, all that stuff. And the things that we purposed to do, we don't do so very well anymore. Part of that is that we tend to think of these New Year's resolutions in isolation, as a little piece. We don't see it as part of a larger picture. And so when we don't follow through on the resolution, we don't see it as a failure of one of the legs of a larger picture. Think of a three-legged stool. You need all three legs for it to stand up. We don't think of our resolution in those terms. I'd like to talk this morning about who we are, how we can consider ourselves, and I'd like to talk about it in the context of discipleship. Discipleship. I think one of the things that we consider at the beginning of the year is our worth. We want to make changes we want to improve our self-worth. We want to be something other than what we are. And so we commit to make these changes. Um, as Christians, the changes that are made are valuable when they bring us closer to Jesus, when we become more like Jesus. So if you've been making New Year's resolutions, that's a good way to think about it. Jesus commanded, and by the way, let me just pause here for a minute and tell you a little story. I stand before you in large part, Jesus for sure, but in terms of earthly influence, I stand in front of you because of a man who poured himself into me. His name is Ed West, Dr. Ed West. He's a retired pediatrician, very likely my best friend. And for years, we studied together. For years, he took time out of his life to bring me along and enable me to get to the point where I could draw the teaching that I needed, aided by the Holy Spirit, straight from the Word and from God. What, what I've prepared today draws heavily on a number of conversations that I had with him. Part of the reason being that discipleship seems to be sort of a gray, hazy area. Everybody knows that we should be involved in discipleship, but we're really not quite sure just what it is and how you do that. Well, I'd like to tackle that today. I'd like to go into the Old Testament. I'd like to talk a little bit about what there is in the Old Testament. I'm going to talk about the New Testament, discipleship in the New Testament. I only have a limited amount of time, so we're going to move quickly. Some of these concepts, for some of you, 
maybe new concepts. Um, if Brian, if Pastor Brian approves, what I'll do is I'll make my notes available through the secretary if somebody wants to come back and check scripture references or anything like that, okay? Now, I'm told that there was somebody who stood here once and preached for 66 minutes. No. <laughs> that will not happen today. It's set for 28. I'm pressing start. That gives me another 30 minutes afterwards to, to do my thing. Okay, let's get into this. Jesus commanded that his followers go and make disciples. Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. But something that's made must first be fully defined. We need to know what it is if we're going to make it. So what's the full definition of a disciple? That's what I hope that within about 30 minutes we'll have some idea about. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word disciple is a noun derived from the adjective limud, L-I-M-M-U-D, which describes a manner of teaching by training and practice. It's often translated as taught and accustomed, which is to say practiced or accomplished. So taught or accustomed, and the way the word accustomed is used is practiced or accomplished. Importantly then, a disciple is a learner, a student. Now when I was involved in a Christian school back in South Carolina, we constantly had conversations about the difference between a pupil and a student a pupil and a student. And if I could use body language as an example, a pupil, you can usually tell by their posture. A student, you can also tell by their posture. They're leaning forward, they're engaged, they want to know what you have to say. So a disciple is a learner, he's a student, who practices what he is taught, who practices what he is taught under the direction of his teacher. Simply stated, a disciple is a student who practices listening. And we're going to come back to this a lot. So listening is hearing, understanding, and obeying. So a student listens, he hears, he understands, and he obeys. One example of many is from Moses, who taught the nation of Israel as though the people were disciples. And he said, now Israel, listen to the statutes and judgments which I am teaching you. Moses is not just saying, well, just be aware. It's in the book somewhere. He's saying, listen, hear me, understand what I'm saying, and obey the statutes and judgments which I am teaching you. Again, that word, lamud. That's in Deuteronomy, by the way, 4.1. A New Testament example is Jesus. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Now, in the passage, 
the Greek phrase continue in my word describes following a policy, a preset, pre-established, a policy of obedience to the teachings of Jesus. An individual who is being made into a disciple is necessarily a person who is undergoing transformation. We are being changed. Who can listen, hear, understand, and obey the teaching of Jesus and not be changed? A fully mature disciple always listens. But one who is being made into a disciple is learning to always listen through practice, repetition. When listening is, <coughs> excuse me, when listening is actually the consistent, usual practice, it is because repetitions of righteous activities have resulted in habits. Now, that's not to say that Jesus is a habit, but it is to say that the response to what Jesus is saying to us can be understood and purposed towards in advance. Practice is doing it over and over. Whatever is being practiced will be done better and better. So learning is always listen by practicing. It is a policy of active listening. Hear, understand, and obey. It is the first lesson for a disciple who is being taught. Now let's look at a real life example. Most of the people in the room, many, the majority of the people in the room are parents. Without direction, an immature child does not listen consistently. Amen? Any parents agree with that statement? He lives his life led mostly by instincts, impulses, and feelings. Left to himself, perhaps a child discovers something about wisdom, knowledge of the right way to go, but it will be by trial and error as habits and feelings still easily dominate his decisions. The solutions for making or transforming a child into a mature adult is to place him under the careful supervision of a mature person and not only instincts. This way, the child learns the right way to go. This is the wisdom of biblical child rearing. Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he will go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. How many of us parents have muttered that through gritted teeth <laughs> at times? It's also the wisdom of achieving maturity for a child of God. Jesus listened to his teacher perfectly. The son can do, he said, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. That's John 5, 19, if you want to look it up. 
If the state of maturity of a disciple is indicated by his consistency in listening, then the appearance of a disciple depends on his spiritual maturity. Similarly, a disciple who listens more and more consistently to the teachings of God will begin to appear more and more like his teacher. Amen? Okay. Hear, understand, and obey. This is what we're working through. Matthew chapter 10 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. A number of words in the Hebrew can describe the process of teaching, but there are two primary words which refer directly to teaching. One of these is yara, Y-A-R-A-H, yara, a Hebrew word which translates to teach. The noun form translates teacher. This word is spoken by Eliu in a classic example of its use. He said, behold, God is exalted in his power, who is a teacher. Who is a teacher like him? Who is a teacher, Yara, like him? In this usage, the noun Yara describes one who imparts a lesson. One who imparts a lesson, who gives a lesson. In other passages, forms of the word Yara are translated as arrow, as in arrow, and one who shoots arrows can also be referred to as yara. Following the imagery, a teacher then is an archer who implants the arrow of knowledge into his subject, into his student. God is the archer who is the great teacher. He not only knows the lesson, he knows how to implant the lesson in the brain of his disciple and can get the point across. Are you with me so far? I'm, I'm glad that I got to teach today because everyone had yesterday to recover from the festivities of New Year's Eve. So I don't expect to see anyone sleeping. We need to all be students. A lesson imparted is a teaching that has been accepted, understood, and processed in the mind of a student. But simply receiving, understanding, and filing away a lesson may result in more, nothing more, than a mind full of knowledge. I think there are a lot of people walking around who have a lot of bits and pieces of information from the Bible, about the Bible, about God, about all the different pieces, the stories, and so on and so forth. They have a mind full of knowledge, but very little wisdom. The repeated emphasis of the teaching of the Old Testament is not simply to file away information, but rather to do what is taught. To do what is taught. This active application and response to the teachings of God is expressed in the other commonly used Hebrew word 
for both teaching and learning, and that is lamad. It gets better, folks. An example is, blessed is the man whom you discipline, Lord, and whom you teach. That's lamad. From your law. And whom you teach from your law. For most of us, learning to consistently submit and then simply do what scripture requires is a deliberate effort of the will. It doesn't just happen. We have to be conscious. We have to understand what's being done. And we need to participate. We need to determine to go in that direction. Consistent listening results from learning and practicing this submissive attitude. Practicing listening to God develops that critical attitude described as the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear. Lamad, my words, so that they may learn, Lamad, to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach, Lamad, their children. There's a transfer of information. There's an imperative that's being made here, and the expectation that God has something that he wants, in this case, the Hebrews, in our case, all of us, to have and to know. The psalmist sang of teaching Lamad, the fear of the Lord, and the benefits which are promised to those who learn this fear. The prophet told of Messiah who would enthusiastically possess the spirit of the fear of God. Now this is Messiah who would enthusiastically possess the spirit of the fear of God. Isaiah 1, 11 through 1 through 3. Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, sorry. And would someday be the grand model of the disciple. Spoiler, Jesus is in here somewhere. This model disciple, animated by the Lord himself, would persevere in resistance and continue to do the teaching of the Lord by the power of his teacher. Beyond this, the Lord would someday provide this capacity for his people. In the Old Testament, a disciple is one who is taught, particularly by practice, and, do, and who does what he learns. That is, obeys his teacher's instruction. In the New Testament, the word disciple, mathetes is the Greek word, is used repeatedly in the four Gospels and in the book of Acts. This noun, derived from the Greek verb to learn, manthano, to think with endeavor, to think with endeavor, to carefully consider, to think with endeavor, to acquire understanding by instruction, and observation. In the New Testament, Methodius consistently describes a student, a learner, who is an advocate of the ideas that his teacher is teaching and who lives out the ideas, who lives out the ideas in his own life. The prophecy that Messiah would be a disciple, Isaiah 50, 
4 and 5 was fulfilled in the life of Jesus on earth. His teacher, Jesus' teacher, was his father. As the model disciple, Jesus always did what he learned from his father, that is, from his teacher. Consider this set of sayings of Jesus. He said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees his father doing. For whatever the father is doing, these things the son also does in like manner. And John 5, 19, For I have come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The disciples of Jesus, the twelve, and many others as well, were particularly distinguished and described in the New Testament. They were called out in the New Testament. Remarkably, even after his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, those who joined the original disciples of Jesus were also known as his disciples. This was before the four Gospels were written. Later, Paul declared that Christ himself had been his teacher before he began his ministry. Paul declared that Christ himself had been his teacher before he began his ministry. How could a teacher long gone continue to be the teacher of the disciples? Well, folks, I got some good news for you. The answer to the question lies in the heart of the gospel, and it's why we call the gospels the good news. A distinctive of Christian theology is that the Spirit of God lives in each of us. The Spirit of God lives in each of us. Paul refers to this as the mystery which he was specifically appointed to share with the Gentiles. Thank you, Paul. All of us sitting here appreciate that. I don't think we have any Jews in the room, do we? Didn't think so. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The spiritual reality of Christ in you is that the one who is your teacher actually lives in you. Scriptures describe the divine spirit in the believer as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Christ. Just as was prophesied, the day has come that the people of God receive direct instruction from him capital H. As believers, we are taught by the teacher who dwells in us. Today, a disciple of Jesus hears directly from him as he hears from the Father, as he hears. So we hear directly from Jesus even as he hears directly from the Father, the source of wisdom. The disciples taught the new believers to be taught by the Spirit within. Jesus taught that he was the teacher. The Father taught, this is my son. Listen to him. The, 
in the New Testament, the word disciple is used so frequently that in the context of Christian disciples, unless otherwise specified, Jesus is often assumed to be the teacher or the leader. Generically, though, the Greek noun disciple, Methides, refers to one who is learning by endeavor under the supervision of the teacher. Learning by endeavor under the supervision of the teacher. Not this. This. In this understanding, a disciple is an individual who practices certain skills or disciplines under the direction of a teacher regardless of who their teacher might be. Chronologically, the first recorded disciples of Jesus were John and Andrew. These two were disciples. They were in a discipling relationship before they encountered Jesus at the Jordan River. They were originally disciples of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was a godly man filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what Luke says, and a leader of disciples, that's what Luke says. He had baptized Jesus, but he didn't really recognize who he was as the Messiah before they were actually in the river. The day after John encountered Jesus at the Jordan, the two met again, and this time John proclaimed Jesus as the reason for his own mission. And he did this in the presence of John and Andrew. John then recorded the response of the two disciples. And he said, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Excuse me, I want to be sure that I'm not being presumptuous here. <clears throat> Is everybody with me so far? We've talked about the Old Testament precedent. Now we're talking about how this unfolded with Jesus himself as recorded in the New Testament. Jesus turned and said to them as they were following him and said, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. This simple passage wonderfully expands the New Testament concept of the word disciple. A disciple is a learner who is in fellowship with his teacher. Now let me just take a break here. What has happened is that John, being a forerunner, an announcer, sort of the town crier, if you will, for Jesus, has disciples that are in relationship with him. And John is teaching them the truths that were available at that time. They are being taught. They're leaning in. They're listening. They're with John because they choose to be there. And John, understanding his, his mission, when he sees Jesus and it's revealed to him that this is the Messiah, he turns to his own guys that he's been training 
his own guys who have the expectation, his own guys who have anticipation of the coming Messiah, and he says to them, there's the Lamb of God. And without even thinking about it, the two fellows walk after Jesus. They had been trained that when the teacher came, when Jesus showed up, there was no question. They had been properly trained. They knew what to do. And they set out and followed Jesus and said, where are you going? He said, well, come on, I'll show you. And they did. I mean, if we wanted to put a dramatic flair on it, we could say, with never a backward glance. But for sure, they wandered off with Jesus wherever it was he was going. John and Andrew may have been brand new disciples of Jesus, but they had been trained by John the Baptist as disciples before this. We have a role. When the Bible says older men teach the younger men, older women teach the younger women, this is not about crocheting or cooking or changing tires, although it could involve that. This is about there's the Lamb of God. We are the ones that say to the younger people, this is how you will recognize him. This is how you should be thinking at this time. This is the expectation that you should have. The Old Testament emphasizes that a disciple is a learner who does what he is taught. That is, he listens to his teacher. As for the relationship between the teacher and the student, there are only inferences in the Old Testament. For instance, the father, hoping to import, impart lessons of wisdom to his son, speaks, give me your heart, my son, and let your eyes delight in my ways. In parallel to this father of Proverbs, the Lord was the father and teacher of his child, Israel, with similar expectations. Some Hebrews of the Old Testament had a special knowledge of God. It's true. An example is Abraham. But for most, God was revealed in nature and by miracles, which were God's direct intervention in life. In a special way, the nation of Israel received the revelation of the law and the prophets of Israel spoke of the coming day when God's intervention in history and everyone would know God. This prophecy would be fulfilled when Jesus and the New Testament writers developed the theological idea that a disciple is a student who not only listens to his teacher, but also enjoys a special relationship with his teacher. Now, I want to go back and say, finding our self-worth and our discipleship with Jesus. I've been through a number of discipling courses, and I've read books on it. And for the most part, they tend to be the 27 steps to discipleship with, you know, the 18 best ways to disciple G with Jesus. They're, they're all sort of these self-help books. And it's, if you check all the boxes, you're a disciple. But the fact is, what we're being invited into is intimacy with Jesus. This isn't a St. Peter at the pearly, I'm taking some liberty here. St. Peter at the pearly gates. Okay, 
how many of the answers did you get right on your discipleship exam? Okay, that's not what this is about. This is about standing before the Lord and him saying, welcome my good and faithful servant. Why? Because we are in relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. How do we become more like Jesus? Well, that's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about. We submit to his teaching, we humble ourselves before him, and we learn. And when the Holy Spirit says, hey, Pete, check this out. Okay, I'm reading it, but it doesn't say much. Well, shut up a minute, I'll tell you. Okay? All right, that means 28 minutes. I got another nine minutes. I'm going to start talking really fast. FedEx guy's got nothing on me. All right, so what I'm trying to say here is we've talked a lot about teaching. We've talked a lot about learning. We've talked a lot about don't just file it away under D for discipleship, but actually do what you're learning. We've talked a lot about that. Let's talk about relationship. Interpersonal relationships are a manner of connection between individuals. If, if, if I can go down a rabbit hole for a minute here, one of the biggest impacts that this whole COVID thing has had on my life is that it has interrupted relationships and it stopped, for Trish and me, relationships which otherwise would have developed and flourished. Interpersonal relationships are the manner of connection between individuals. Most of our relationships are with people of equal status. We are all brothers and sisters in the Lord. The teacher-student relationship, however, is naturally one of unequal status. Whenever there is a significant difference in status, a relationship will tend to have a protocol of formality determined by the superior. Okay, in my younger years, I was known to employ some salty language on occasion, never in front of the priest, never in front of the pastor, don't do it in church. I, I know there's nobody else here that ever had to deal with that. But this is kind of what we're talking about. In the relationship, the pastor has a standing and we submit ourselves in the relationship to that standing. You just don't cuss in front of the pastor. You don't do it. Right, Brian? <laughs> so the relationship is determined by the superior. If intimacy develops, it's by the permission of the superior and requires following the protocol. The, if you want to go and visit with the queen, you know, you don't just go in and bump elbows with the queen. There's a whole bunch of stuff that from the way you dress, to the way that you approach, to the way that you address, there's a whole system that's laid out there. You're not in control, she is. A boss, a supervisor, and a clerk, a colonel, and a private. When I say these things, we understand, you know what, colonel's in charge. He says, fix bayonet and take the hill, guess what? It may be a stupid idea, but you're still going to fix bayonet and take the hill because those are the terms under which the relationship exists. 
in a teacher-student relationship, the teacher is in the superior position of deciding, and the student, by definition, is in a subordinate position, responding as directed. In many circumstances of education, students may know something about their teachers, but the disciples of Jesus come to a depth of knowledge of their teacher that is distinctive. The intimacy in the relationship is of unequal status, but intimacy can develop because of the teacher's intentional intervention. We don't come to Jesus because I feel like it today. We come to Jesus because he invites us. Are there specific terms, we're, we're, we're all Christians, are there specific terms under which we approach Jesus? If Jesus were to show up right here today and start giving instructions, would we obey him? I'd like to think so. If there's one who has the right to stand here and give instruction, it is our Lord, Jesus. Amen? Amen. So if our Lord, who makes the rules, stands here and starts giving instructions, guess what? We're likely to hear, understand, and obey. Paul made a big deal out of this when he talked about repentance and obedience. Repentance such that we might be in a right frame of mind to be able to deal with Jesus and obedience, which is the only reasonable response to instruction that's given by the Lord. He said, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, Put them away from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge. In the title, we talked about self-worth. If you want to draw from anything by which you establish your self-worth, this is it. It's not the fact that you drive a Chevy or a Ford or a BMW. It's not that you live in the high rent district or down in the barrio. It has nothing to do with any of that. It is all about our standing, our right relationship, our leaning in, our hearing, understanding, and obeying Jesus. Obedience is the hallmark of a, of a disciple. But, Jesus, uh, but the teacher enables the obedience as he urges his disciple into a deeper intimacy with him through confession and repentance. In the Old Testament, it was not possible for those people to carry out... I keep having to come back to the microphone here. It was not possible for those people to carry forward. The Old Testament is the history, it's a chronology of trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing, of God reaching down, picking them up every time they fall down, okay? They were not able. We are. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit. You have God that lives in you. The outcome 
anticipated is still the same outcome. The difference is, and what Paul says is, because of God who lives in us, we can do it. God can do it through us. Thank you for correcting me. The end of true intimacy with Jesus, the end, the the objective of true intimacy with Jesus, our determination to listen is now an achievable reality. Unlike the circumstance in the Old Testament and under the Mosaic Law, we've received the helper, the Holy Spirit, who enables us to draw closer in intimacy with Jesus. It is by the power of God that we can truly become disciples of our Lord and live in the expectation of a life being changed. We are to live in the expectation of a life being changed. The process of being a disciple is a determined application of ourselves to the pursuit of love, agape, of God. The greatest commandment, love God, love your neighbor. The closer we draw to God through this process, the more we become like Jesus and the less we look like our old self. There is no place in our relationship with God for the expression of self-will. There's no negotiation. There's no, have you considered this? We're taught, we hear, we understand, we obey. There can only be humble determination to know, to love Christ, and to subordinate all other human activities to that goal. If the new year requires a resolution, we can, do, can we do any less than to set our faces as flint in our determination to know Christ and to be conformed to his perfection. The making of disciples is the biblical vehicle by which, Je- which Jesus modeled for us and to which he calls us in order to accomplish the changes necessary to become more like him. In a world that calls us to identify, to identify with brands, causes, and all manner of earthly diversions, we must steadfastly find our worth and our identity by using the same measuring stick that God uses. In 2022, let's resolve to actively pursue an intimate, growing relationship with Jesus. As the Apostle John said, a disciple is a learner who is changing and maturing. Amen. Father, we pray that what we've heard here today would be used that it would be useful in bringing us all into Christ-likeness and in so doing, bring us closer to you. We pray these things in the name of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.